praised. He is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy. But not just part of, but not just some of. He is worthy for all our praise. Hallelujah. Worthy, 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 he's so worthy. Just take a moment to be reminded why he's so worthy. Not just because he brought you out this morning. Not just because he brought you through another week. But just take a moment to look over your life. <laughs> Those moments where it should have been you. Those moments he kept you from. Those times in spite of your foolishness. When nothing was on the table, eating sugar sandwiches. <laughs> In spite of all that, he's brought you where you are right now. He brought you. You may think you're tough. You ain't that tough. He brought you out. He brought you over. He brought you through. That's why we show up on Sunday mornings to collectively say you are worthy of our praise. Hallelujah. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise one more time. He is worthy of our praise. Why don't you bow with me as we go before our worthy and mighty God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we humbly approach your mighty throne of grace, declaring thank you, shouting thank you, for you are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our attention. You are worthy of our affection. And certainly, you are worthy of our worship. Father, our hearts cry out, hallelujah, to our Abba Father, to Daddy, to the one who has kept us and sustained us. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to gather one more time in worship, to lift you up. May we not take for granted that we're able to get up and get out of the bed in our own strength. Father, may we not take it for granted that we're able to reach here safely as we travel through the highways and the byways. And Father, may we never take it for granted that we can see one another one more Sunday, one more day. Thank you, Father, for how you, you've been strengthening us and how you have been calling us to yourself. We thank you that you have opened blind eyes and deaf ears. Father, thank you for your amazing grace. But certainly, Lord, we have a testimony that it was because of your amazing grace that saved a wretch like me, saved a wretch like you. 
Father, thank you so much that we can sing that with all confidence, knowing that our salvation is not based upon what we have brought to the table, but it was already secured in the, in the broken body and shed blood of Christ Jesus. So, Heavenly Father, as we come before your, your throne this morning, may you please part your spirit to remind us just who you are. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You hold all of creation in the palm of your hand. You are our great sustainer. You are the Lord, the Lord God, who is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And Father, as we come this morning, may our hearts cry out hallelujah, because we know that you have saved wretches like us, and I ask that you would be in our midst this morning, that no matter what may be going on, whatever issue or concern of life, Father, help our unbelief, those areas that we are still trying to have control over our lives, help us to surrender to you this day. And Father, as you have called me to preach your word to your people, may you help me and have mercy. I am weak, I am foolish, and I, I am desperate need of the power of Christ to rest upon me this day, that you may be magnified, that you may be exalted. And Father, right now I ask that the one that you are dealing with, that you are drawing them near to you, that they will hear your word and come running, asking what must they do to be saved. Father, may you save some and strengthen others. But Lord, we ask that you would be in our midst. We do love you and thank you. In the precious and mighty name of Jesus the Christ, we do pray. And all of God's people say it together, amen. Amen. Indeed, I Welcome you this morning to this church gathered at Forest Baptist, to all of our guests and our friends. It is good to see you one more Sunday. And it's good to know that the Lord has been on our side all week. Well, this morning, in your Bibles or on your device, we're going to get right to it. We, we have a lot of ground to cover, and I'm trying not to cover it in a, in a whole lot of time. So turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles or on your device to Matthew, the fifth chapter. Matthew, the fifth chapter. And we've been walking through this uh, introduction to the entire Sermon on the Mount. This, the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who's ever lived, Jesus the Christ. And, and, and as we have went through the Beatitudes, this introduction to the entire Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has uh, ins instructed us and, and gave us as his disciples his, his, his words on what it means to, to be Christian. He's shown us what it means to have Christian virtue. Uh, we are to be needy, to, to be humble, to be kind, to be merciful. He, he is calling us to exude those things, not in order to be saved, but because we are saved. He wants us to be Christian. Verses 13 through 16, we, we've looked at what Jesus has given us as a call to action. He has called us to be salt and light in this world. And, and Jesus is not taking anything less because he has already declared, if you are not fulfilling your role of being Christian, then your Christianity is worthless. Jesus has taught us what it means to have true Christian virtue. He's taught us what it means to have true Christian impact. But this morning, and for the rest of his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples, Jesus will show us what it means to be a true Christian in living. True Christian living comes from a life of true Christian righteousness. We have a lot to cover. There, there are so many nuggets. And in this, in this portion, I was jokingly saying, I, I was actually going to take time to fully explain the role of the law in the life of a New Testament Christ, Christian and all the nuances. But certainly there's not enough time for that. But if you will, please stand with me 
as we read God's word. Matthew, the fifth chapter, verses 17 through 20. This is the word of God. Please hear the voice of Christ. And as Jesus, he's teaching his disciples, and then he says to them, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20. Here's the thesis to the whole Sermon of the Mount. For truly, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. May the Lord have a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. You know, this, there's this ongoing debate, this ongoing tension in this certain home that I will not name. And in this home, there's a, a certain sweet woman who continues to have a conversation with a certain maturing young man who happens to be in middle school about what a clean room looks like. And it is apparent from this, from this sweet woman's standard uh, that her, her, her standard of clean is quite different from this young man's standard of clean. And again, I, I, won't, I won't name any names, but then there's a certain old, older man in this home who, who has his own thoughts on what it means to have a clean room. There's a certain tension taking place. And, 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 and from everyone's uh, actions, we can clearly see that everybody has a different standard of what it means to be clean. This, this young lady's standard is that the, the, the bed is made up and there is nothing on the floor. I'm not going to exaggerate. I, I'm tempted to, 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 to teach in, uh, in hyperbole right now. I'm not going to exa exaggerate, but, but that everything is picked up. The young man's uh, uh, standard of cleanliness is that it just ain't no food on the floor. Everything else could be on the floor, but nothing's crawling around, nothing's living. But then the father, he's kind of somewhere in between. Like, we need to clean the room, but get a guy a break. I, I, I don't know about you, maybe you've been in a similar situation where expectations and standards are, are, are different from one person to another. You expect one thing, but you're seeing another thing, and they expect one thing, and, and they're seeing another thing, and, and that whole situation can lead to a whole lot of frustration. I don't know about you. And many times, there, when there are these disagreements of standards, there's a temptation to come to a compromise in order to keep the peace. You just want to keep the peace, so you begin to compromise. But beloved, unfortunately, this is often the approach we take to serving God. We have our own idea, our own standard of what it means to be clean. Well, I, I'm not as bad as everybody else. At least I'm not like them over there. Well, you know I'm not perfect. We have our own standard of what it means to be clean. But yet, God has his own standard of what it means to be clean because in the word he clearly teaches, you shall be holy for I am holy. See, in God's word, he, he gives us his standard of what it means to be clean. You know, God, he says things like, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. He says things like, this is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality. You know, God, God is so nosy, and he cares about us, and, and, and we can think that he's in our business, but he actually says things like, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Well, 
But instead of humbling ourselves in obedience to God, we always seek ways to try to compromise with God. And in our compromise with God, we begin to actually lower God's standards for our lives. We begin to try to clean our own selves up from the outside by following religious tradition and practices. We begin to play what we can call limbo with the law of God. You know how when you was younger and, and, and y'all got the broomstick out and you began to play limbo, you, you would start up here and, and you would just walk under it thinking you're cute, you're funny, you'll go around. And then uh, that, that, that broomstick got lower and lower and lower to the point where you knew you couldn't get up under there. You knew it wasn't happening. So whether, uh, rather than going, trying to do it the right way, you began to step over the broom. You begin to roll over, you get on your knees, and, and you begin to do all these kind of foolish things in order to get under the broom. And, 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 and beloved, some, a, a lot of times that's how we treat God's standards. As we look into the law of the Lord and he began to squeeze us and to show us the sin in our own lives, we begin to try to step over God's law, try to roll around past God's law, and we begin to act like God's law really doesn't apply to us. In the text, we see that the religious leaders of God of Jesus' day were playing a game of limbo with God's law. But Jesus here, he, he begins to expose their sin, and in the, same, uh, in the same breath, he instructs his disciples in pursuing a right righteousness. A right righteousness, because there is a such thing as a false righteousness. This morning, this, this text teaches us that because God's standards will not be lowered, Jesus must be lifted up in your life. In other words, Christian living looks to Jesus to live up to the law. Jesus wants his disciples to be salt and light. But then he also wants his disciples to do it right. We may not have many standards anymore. We can look out on our Facebook posts and our social media history. We, we may not have many standards. And we see in the world there's, there's not many standards taking place. But, beloved, I just stopped by to remind us today that though we may not have standards, God does. And to understand this text as before us this morning, we, we must understand the role of the law in the life of Israel. So when Jesus comes and he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, he's using that phrase, the law or, or the prophets, as shorthand to talk about all of Scripture, all of the Old Testament Scriptures, all that God has declared and breathed out. He is saying that, that I have not come to get rid of everything that God has already taught you. This, this law, would, it, 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 mean, it meant everything to the Jews, the law of God. See, since the, since the beginning, God has been revealing his commandments to us. He has been revealing his standard of living for his people. We see this in, in, in the book of Genesis where God says to Adam, you can, do, you can have all you want. You can do anything you want. You can eat of any tree and partake except this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't touch that. For when you do, you should surely die. God has given him a commandment to remind him that God is preeminent. He is still king. He is still ruler. And, and you can have everything else, but you still need to obey me. But Adam and Eve, they decide that they're going to do what they want to do, how they want to do it, and they partake of that tree, and they fall into sin. And now for the rest of Scripture, we see how God is raising up a people uh, that they would be holy and blameless and belong to him. But yet, as he goes into covenant with these people, the people are disobedient to God. And we see this taking place in the nation of Israel. So when Jesus is talking about the law of the prophets, he's, he's, he's talking formally about 
the law which had been handed down to Moses on Mount Sinai after Israel's exodus from Egypt. On Mount Sinai, Moses goes up and the cloud of smoke comes over the mountain and God begins to reveal himself to his people to help them understand how do a sinful people live in relationship with a holy and a righteous God. That's what his whole purpose was. And he does so by not just giving them a list of to-dos, he begins to reveal his character through the law. He says in the, in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because God is really the only God. You shall not make for yourself any graven images. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. And, and, and by the way, taking the Lord's name in vain is not just a cuss word. It's any time you are, you are just flippantly using a God's name. When you walk around, like, oh, my God, oh, my God. I'm like, no. If you're going to finish that up, oh, my God, is a good God. Oh, my God, is a great God. But don't just flippantly use the name of God. And then he goes on and he says, and you shall remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. He says in the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother for this is good. Then he says, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not uh, steal. You shall not bear false witness. And you shall not covet. He, God is revealing himself because he says, you don't murder because I'm the giver of life. You don't steal because I'm not a thief. I give freely and liberally. He says, don't tell a lie because I am the truth. And he says, don't covet because why are you going to need to covet anything when I'm the, the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills? And all you have to do is ask me and I'm going to give it to you and take care of my children. So, so God is revealing himself to the nation of Israel on Mount Sinai and giving, the, giving them these laws to understand what it means to be in a covenant relationship with God. Moses therein takes these laws and they begin to extrapolate these laws and they end up having over 613 laws that the nation of Israel will live by. These laws, uh, they, they weren't technically broken up into these divisions, but it's easy for us to think of them when we hear these divisions because these laws, they, they guarded Israel's morality. The, uh, there was a portion of the law that dealt with morality. So things like do not murder. That's the issue of morality. You do not take life because I'm the giver of life. But not only does God guard Israel morally, God guards Israel judicially. He, he governs them through the law. So, so what happens when someone murders? How do you handle that situation? What are you supposed to do? And, and in his law, he begins to lay out, well, what do you do if someone murders? If someone kills, this is what you do. So there is a moral aspect to God's law. There is a judicial, a civil, how, how, how the nation would relate with one another and with other nations. But then lastly, there, there is a, a ceremonial portion of the law. These laws guided Israel ceremonially. So what happens when you fall and fail morally? The ceremonial laws are there to show you how you can be restored in spite of yourself. So if you are guilty of manslaughter, this is the sacrifices you need to take to the temple. This is where you need to go and live. God is, he, and he's laying out in, in detail how do you live with a holy and righteous God. Beloved, the law was never intended to be a list of to-dos and don'ts. The law was intended to be a continual reminder of the covenant relationship God had entered into with his people. Every single law was, was either a type or, some, or a prophecy that always pointed you back to, to your relationship with God. So when you had a law that said you are not to wear clothes with mixed fibers, the, it, it wasn't the fibers specifically that was the issue, but what God wanted you to see that even in the gear that you was wearing, you should be sold out completely for God himself, and you, you not, are not to have any other gods. 
You're not to be with the God of this nation and the God of that nation. So when you put on your, your sheepskin coat and it was just of one type of material, he was saying, I will be one type of worshiper. Every single law it was pointing to something else. It was a, a type. It was a shadow. It was showing Israel that you belong to God. This law not only showed them and reminded them that who they belonged to, but the law also showed Israel how much they needed God. Whenever they thought they were holy enough in themselves, whenever they thought they were big and bad enough to, 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 to live apart from God, God would show them their sin through his law. As soon as they would begin to uh, worship other nations' gods, God would remind them that you shall not have a, a, any other god besides me because this is a covenant of monogamy. We're, we're, we're not stepping out of this relationship. You are to love me and, and me alone. You can't have affections for everybody and try to serve me too. What does it mean to be in covenant? See, marriages are covenants. Marriages are not contracts. A contract says you do your part and I do my part and we'll be okay. But a covenant is saying that I'm going to love you unconditionally. I'm going to do my part even if you don't do yours. See, that's why we get it twisted. When, when, when you go into a covenant relationship only thinking about yourself, then you're doomed to fail. She make me so happy. He make me so happy. I just love being around them. One day those emotions are going to change. Will you still be faithful? But in this text, specifically, two things are taking place. What had happened was that the religious leaders of the day had taken this law that was so important to Israel, and they recreated it in the image of themselves. They began to take this law and wrap all kind of buffers and all kind of uh, uh, add-ons to it in order that they would receive glory over God. But secondly, in this text, we see that Jesus has come to snatch his law from the hands of men and to place it back where it should be in his own image. So the first thing we want to look at in the text before us this morning is that God's standard for living in covenant with him continues today. In verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Don't think I've come to get, get rid of the, the standard of, of what it takes in order to live in relationship with a holy and righteous God. Don't think I've come to remove the, the, those, those instructions off of your life. Jesus is saying, I, I, I have not come to destroy the law. He says, I've come to fulfill the law. What Jesus is doing here is, is, is helping us as his disciples to know that the law lives on. God's standard for living in relationship is not going anywhere. We don't get to, get to say, oh, well, that, that was just for the Old Testament. Or better yet, what we do these, uh, in these days, we say, well, you know, the Bible was written for an ancient Near Eastern people, and it's really not relevant for us today. Jesus is saying, that's garbage. Because my, my word does not change, and my word does not fail. And what I said in the beginning will stay until the end of Revelation. He, he, he's saying it, it lives on today. It's not going anywhere. But also... When Jesus showed up on the scene and they were looking at his life, his life didn't look like all of the other religious leaders. Jesus was a little different. He was a different dude. And he lived in a way that put them to shame. So when they looked at Jesus' life, because they had wrapped the law up in, in so many extras and he wasn't doing all the extras, they, they began to think, I wonder if, if, if Jesus, he, if he's trying to teach another type of teaching. 
if he's trying to get rid of this law that's so important to our lives. But Jesus is saying, no, I have not come to get rid of the law. I have come to make sure you can see it with your own eyes. Jesus is actually pointing the people of Israel back to what it looks like to be in covenant with God. What it looks like to be married to God. Beloved, there's there's times in our lives where we may have grown up in the church. We, we may have, have had a praying grandmother, a praying grandfather. Somebody has showed us what it means to love Jesus. And then, and then for whatever reason, when we become 16, 17, 18, we just leave the church. And, and, we, and we forget what it means to be in a relationship with God. We don't pray no more. We don't read the scriptures anymore. It's all about us and what we want to do. Uh, Jesus has showed up on the scene to remind them you, you, you don't just to get to do what you want to do and call yourself the people of Israel. If you want to call yourself my people, there's a certain way that you need to live. I don't care what, what, what Bobby and them standards are down the street. I, I, I don't care what they, let, what they let their children do around the block. But let me tell you, if you're going to grow up in this house, if you're going to be part of this family, if you're going to live by this last name, there's a certain way and standard that, that you must live. And Jesus is saying, you can't be like everybody else and belong to me, to be a king's kid. So Jesus says, I, I've not come to abolish, to, to set aside, to, 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 to do away with the law. He says, but this law will stand. That he says, for truly I say to you, not un, uh, until heaven and earth pass away. Not an iota, not a dot. What he's saying, the, the smallest Hebrew letter, that iota, that's, that, that's the smallest inscription of the Hebrew. It's almost like, kind of like similar to our, like an I or a comma. It's, it's the smallest part of the law. He says, not, not an iota, not a dot. So, you know, when you dot your eyes across the T, that, that, that little stroke in the Hebrew, there, it was a little stroke that, that they were put. It, it was so small. But what Jesus is saying, it, it doesn't matter if it's the, the big stuff or the little stuff. All of it matters. All of it is going to stay. All of it needs to be obeyed. So, so what Jesus is pushing back against is a, is a Christianity that's almost like a buffet-style type Christianity. You know what I'm talking about. When you go to a Golden Corral, uh, uh, remember Old Country Buffet, when, like, when you go to a spot like that, and then you're you looking out and you're trying to see, hmm, well, I have a piece of that, and I, I don't want anything green today. I'm just going to eat meat. And, and you're going around, you, you get in the ribs, and you get in. Christianity is not a buffet. You don't get to walk around God's table and pick up what you want to pick up and put down what you want to put down. He's saying that if you're going to sit at my table, you got to eat the whole meal. Beloved, we don't get to pick and choose what we're going to obey. God has a standard for Christian living. But what Jesus does, he, he didn't come to abolish the law. He actually came to make it simpler for us to understand. He, he knows how, how dense we can be. He knows that uh, he needs to explain things to us. So, so turn with me to Matthew, the 22nd chapter. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. So Jesus takes all 613 laws and he condenses it, condenses it all down to two. To two laws. He says, just, just do these two things and you got it. You got all of it. In Matthew, the 22nd chapter, Beginning with the 37th verse, Jesus says, and he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And then he says, and, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends what? All the law and the prophets. All of scripture all of what has been reported to you and how you should live as a people, how you should function morally, how you should function judicially, how you should function ceremonially, it boils down to love God and love people. 
Love God and love people. That is a standard that lives today. Our issue in obedience to God is we forget and we begin to love ourselves and nobody else. When we begin to love ourselves more than we love God is when we, when we begin to fall into sin. And when we love ourselves more than God, you will find yourself just floating and drifting away. We love ourselves when we're hard-headed and won't listen to nobody. We love ourselves when can't nobody tell us about our sin. We love ourselves when we don't, we don't pursue what Jesus says about a topic. We make our own decision. We pursue ourselves when we decide to buy a house just because of the square footage and the location. And we don't seek God's desire for our own lives. We live lives for ourselves when we just buy a car because it's sweet. But what if the Lord wanted you to use just a part of that money to be a blessing to somebody else? We live for ourselves when we are living constantly above our means and are not allowing God to use us for his purposes. Those are just some examples of how we ignore loving God and loving people. But what does that mean for us? If the law lives on, what do we need to do on this side of Calvary? Or what you call the age of grace? Oh, we, we like grace. We like grace a whole lot, don't we? We use grace like it's a get-out-of-jail-free card. Oh, just grace. We, we done cut somebody out of work. There's grace. We going from house to house. There's grace. We mean and nasty and angry. Talk to folks any old way. There's grace. Beloved, we, we need a more nuanced understanding of grace. See, because the law and grace aren't enemies. They're friends. They're bedfellows. They, they come together. What we need to understand is that when you think about grace and all the scriptures that go with grace, in one aspect, grace is that unmerited favor, not the unmerited favor that you get to do what you want to do. It's that unmerited favor that in your, in your sin. In your wickedness, in spite of who you were, God came and rescued you, and you ain't have nothing to do with your salvation. So grace is saying that God actually gave you the power to believe. That's grace. That when, when, when you were stuck on stupid, that God said, in spite of what you're doing, I'm going to save you still. I, I, I don't have to look back far to look over my life to see those times where I was just doing my own thing and that couldn't nobody tell me different. But God reached into my life. He flipped the switch, showed me my sin, and caused me to repent. Grace is the power to believe God. That's what grace is. But on the other side of it, we have texts like in Titus 2 where it says, Grace has appeared, training us to, to get rid of ungodliness. So grace gives you the power to believe God, but grace also gives you the power to obey God. Grace is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit who keeps you from doing what you used to do. Grace says you really would normally go off right about now, but I'm going to superintend your mouth in such a way that instead of speaking curses, you start speaking blessings. Folks that you know you want to go off on, it makes no sense you just say, you know what, God bless you. I'm going to be praying for you. Knowing last week you would have cussed them out and tell them where they could go. But God, 
being rich in mercy, he, he, he does something on the inside that causes you to actually want to obey him. Beloved, that's grace. You would not have wanted to follow his instructions. You, you used to think that this was the stupidest lo- I hate going to church. Why are we always praying in church? Why the preacher pray so long? Don't he know I'm falling asleep? And then all of a sudden, God works in your heart in such a way that you actually start liking prayer. You mean I can come before the throne of God and make my petition to him? You mean I got the privilege to read this love letter of 66 books that he's given to me? You mean I got the privilege to uplift and edify those I love in Christ? You mean that he has a a job for me that only I can do? You mean that he's given me a spiritual gift that can't nobody else accomplish but me? You mean that God is choosing to use me in his kingdom business here on earth? You mean I get to be part of the number who will be going to glory? You mean that I get to walk on streets of gold? You mean that I get to shout hallelujah and declare his goodness to this world? You mean that I got the power of life and death in my tongue? You mean that I can preach the gospel that's going to take the broke down and build them up. You mean that I got a gospel that would take those who are far away and reconcile. You mean I get to be a part of the Lord's army. You, you, think, you, think, you, you think you got there overnight? That's grace. That's grace. Oh, grace. That's why it's amazing. Jesus, he he, he retched down and flipped the script. And all of a sudden, you begin to love the things that he loves and to hate the thing that he hates. That's grace. That's grace. The law leads us to grace. The law was our schoolmaster, Galatians, leading us to Christ. Because the law is like a nice, clean mirror showing you what you really look like. See, the law loves you, but the law going to tell you the truth about yourself. The law going to tell you you got bad breath. The, the law going to tell you you shouldn't really part your hair that way. See, the law going to tell you about all the, the messy things, but the law don't leave you there. The law says, though, <laughs> though you may be broke up or toe up from the flow up, Though you may be distorted and shifted, I know a man he, who can save you and transform you and make you look whole again. The law points us to the grace found in Christ Jesus. But watch this. But then grace gives you the power to obey the law. Grace will send you back and says, now go live it out. The law says you need to be clean. And grace says, now I don't wash you so you can walk it out. When we understand just what grace is doing, then we won't use it like this this band-aid to cover up our brokenness. Yes, we have forgiveness. But what grace does, grace says, you've been forgiven for that sin. When you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you in spite of yourself. And now he will turn your affections so you won't have to come back again. Grace is working through the law. 
So when we say there's grace for that, there's grace for that. But yet grace is more than that. Grace gives us the strength to obey because the law continues today. Quickly, let me work through the rest of this. So secondly, God's standard for living in covenant with him continues today, but then also it cannot be lowered. It cannot be lowered. In verses 19 and 20, we see that the law is lofty. The law is high. God has high standards. And here, Jesus, he, he's giving his disciples a warning. Don't lower my standards. Don't lower my standards and still think you can, you can just come before me in any way. I've had many a conversations with young ladies who are looking for uh, someone to marry. I've had many conversations with young men about looking for someone to date. And the main thing I always say to them is, don't lower your standards. Yes, there is a desire, but don't lower your standards. Beloved, as we walk this Christian life, don't, don't lower your standards. The world has already lowered theirs. If we lowered ours too, then how will we ever be sought in life? In verse 19, Jesus, he's, he's commenting now on the religious leaders and how they have lowered the law. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, that they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. What he's saying is the Pharisees had, had lived in such a way that, they, that they, they added to God's law and, and put it behind their desires because what they put the law behind, they could actually keep. They could actually do it. They could actually live up to their own standards. So they had lowered the law by, by, by doing things like in order to be seen as, as righteous, now, God's law said that the nation, they only needed to, to fast one day a year, the Day of Atonement. That was in the law. But the Pharisees would, would fast three and four times a week. Why? Because they, they wanted to act like they were super righteous, super holy, in order to separate themselves not from sin, but from the other folks. They would do things like where they were supposed to take care of their, their family and supposed to take care of their parents. They would say their money was going to the temple so they really couldn't take care of their parents. And, and the law, it, it doesn't say that you needed to take care of the temple. It says take care of your parents. They were adding to the law. And Jesus is saying, stop trying to live by the letter of the law. And you start living by the intent of the law. Y'all know what I'm talking about. You growing up, and, you, and your parents say, okay, I, I don't want you, to, I don't want you to, uh, to, to go outside. And then you go outside anyway, but you go to somebody else's house. So when you get back and you, and, you, and you get in trouble for going outside, you say something like, you said don't go outside, not to go over uh, Jimmy and them house. You trying to get around the law by bringing up the letter of the law when you knew the intention of the law was you on punishment and your butt need to stay in the house. You know, as Christians, we try to live by the letter of the law and not the intent of the law. And just like the Pharisees, we begin to relax. God's commandments. As parents, we begin to say things like, now don't have sex, but if you do. Don't be partying all night, but if you do. And we begin to relax God's standard of abstinence. We begin to relax God's standard of no drunkenness. We, we, we begin to relax God's standard of no debauchery. And, 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 and then we're happy because they met our standard. 
Well, at least they ain't pregnant. At least they came home. I know, I know he was drunk throwing up, but at least he came home. God don't work like us. He has a standard for how we should live. And if we don't meet his standard, we have fallen into sin. Jesus takes it to the Pharisees by contrasting them with the people and saying, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, just looking at it, it would seem like Jesus is saying, because the Pharisees and the scribes live such holy lives, you actually got to live a life that's even holier than them to get into heaven. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that the Pharisees and the scribes, they have a false righteousness. It's actually pretty low. So if you plan on getting into heaven, don't be like them. You have a true righteousness, a righteousness that is from me because you are obeying my law. You are in covenant relationship with me, and you believe what I, what I have said, and you're living how I want you to live. The righteousness. The Pharisees' righteousness, it it, it seems superior when their righteousness was really subordinate. So, as faithful disciples of, of Christ, we should be models of Christian living. But remember, though I'm a model of Christian living, I'm not the standard of Christian living. And, and we got to be careful when we're looking horizontally at, at one another to figure out uh, how righteous we are. And, and, and the way that we really need to find out how righteous we are is we need to look up to Jesus. He's the standard of our righteousness. God's standard for living in covenant with him continues today. God's standard for living in covenant with him cannot be lowered. But then lastly, God's standard for living in covenant with him is fulfilled in Jesus. Going back to verse 17, Jesus says, I, I have not come to get rid of the law, but I have come to fulfill the law. God, Jesus fulfills the law. What, what he means is not that he has satisfied the law in a way that he gets rid of it, but he has fully demonstrated obedience to the law in all ways. He satisfies the law. He accomplishes the law. And and because he does that, there is hope. Because Jesus fulfills the law with with his life, we have hope. In every way, Jesus fulfills the law. See, remember, the law had three, three portions, the moral, the judicial, and the ceremonial. Where Jesus comes and he fulfills the moral law. He comes as one who who lives without sin, no no stain, no blemish, no no spot. He lived a sinless, perfect life in thought and in deed. Then Jesus, he fulfills the judicial law, not that he kept all the laws, but because in himself he is the nation of Israel. And not only does he fulfill the moral, the judicial, but remember, the ceremonial laws were there. What do you do when you fall? What do you do when you fail? You need a sacrifice. In Christ Jesus, he fulfills the ceremonial law. He fulfills the entire law in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. In Luke, the 24th chapter, on his road to Emmaus, Jesus is trying to help his disciples understand this concept. He says, I, I, I fulfilled all the law. I, I've done it all. And in verse 27 of the 24th chapter, he says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things con- concerning himself. Beloved, Jesus doesn't just show up in Matthew. Jesus has been with us since Genesis. All of Scripture finds its fulfillment and points 
to Jesus Christ. So when you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are fulfilling the law and the prophets because Christ is the one who lives in you. All of the scriptures are pointing to Jesus. In Genesis, he's the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the high priest. In Numbers, he's the cloud by day and the fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he's the prophet like Moses. In Joshua, he's the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he's the judge and the lawgiver. In Ruth, he's our kinsman redeemer. In 1 and 2 Samuel, he's the prophet of the Lord. In in 1 and 2 Kings, he's the reigning king. In 1 and 2 Chronicles, he's the glorious temple. In Ezra, he's the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of the walls. In Esther, he's Mordecai. In Job, he's the day spring from on high. In Psalm, he is the Lord who is our shepherd. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he's the wisdom of God. In Song of Solomon, he's the lover and bridegroom. In Isaiah, he's the suffering servant. In Jeremiah and Lamentations, he's the weeping prophet. And Ezekiel, he's the son of man. And Daniel, he's the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven. And Hosea, he's the bridegroom. And Job, he's the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. And Amos, he's the burden bearer. And Obadiah, he's the mighty savior. And Jonah, he's the forgiving God. And Micah, he's the messenger with beautiful feet. And Nahum, he's the avenger of God's elect. And Habakkuk, he's the great evangelist crying for revival. And Zephaniah, he's the restorer of the remnant. And Haggai, he's the cleansing fountain. And Zechariah, he's the piercing sun. And in Malachi, he's the son of righteousness. All of Scripture. Finds its fulfillment. And Jesus the Christ. This is why in Jeremiah, as he satisfied all of the judicial law, and as he satisfied all the ceremonial laws, Jesus is actually satisfying the moral law through his people. In Jeremiah 31, 31, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they already know me, from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is why Jesus is our only hope and help. The standard of the law is holy perfection. But who can stand before God and say, I've kept it all? Who can stand and say, I did it? Who can stand and say, I'm not guilty? In heaven, the scene plays out. They're all standing around the throne. And they're saying, we're all guilty. We have no hope. Can't nobody open the scroll. There's nobody worthy to open the scroll. But then the text, the text tells us, That when all hope was gone, Jesus comes from behind the curtain like the lamb who was slain. And he said he grabbed the robe 
He grabbed the scroll, and he was able to open it. That's your salvation. That's my salvation. For those who repent and trust in Jesus, our hope is now found in heaven. Instead of lifting our legal requirements of the law up for our righteousness, lift up Jesus. Lift up Jesus. Pursue his amazing grace. For in it, he gives us the power to believe and he gives us the power to obey. Beloved, we may not have standards, but God does. Let us pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for being the lamb that was slain on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, for being the one who was able to open the scroll and supply so great a salvation for us. Father, today may, may one realize the depth of their sin, that they are under the wrath of the law, but that you have made a way that grace would draw them to you and grace would keep them. Lord, thank you so much for being our holy master. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' precious holy name we do pray. Amen.